everybody and welcome to the Industrial Sourcing Podcast. My name is Anne-Sophie. I'm a former global commodity manager, and now I'm the CEO of a cloud software application for manufacturers called Ravacan. We help you collect price updates and automatically generate impact reports on product margin and cash flow, so you can take the best decisions and secure your supplies as fast as possible. Do you think that securing supplies is the number one priority for manufacturers in 2022? Well, go to ravacan.com to see what other supply chain experts have to say. It's December 2021, and this year has been tough. But today we can cheer you up a little bit. For this episode, we have Pierre Weber. He's an automotive lead buyer at Bosch and is in charge of setting up an independent purchasing organization. He previously worked for Flowserve and for Esha, another major automotive T1. And he did something incredible. He managed to bring back competition into a duopoly. He's also going to explain what it means to be a good negotiator. Hi, hello, Pierre. How are you? Good evening, Anne-Sophie. I'm fine. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for the invitation to your podcast. Yeah, excited. Excited to have you on the on the podcast. Well, I'm very excited to uh, be talking with you because, you know, you're, I think, a little bit like me, a very passionate person uh, about direct procurement, right? Direct sourcing. Uh, and we can see, you know, the type of products you um You purchased uh, in the past and uh, and right now, um, so it's very exciting to have you. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now at Bosch? Yes, well, uh, right now uh, I uh, I'm working on the the, the support of uh, setting up uh, independent uh, purchasing organization uh, within the the company in uh, an entity that is. Uh, scheduled to be uh, separated from the group and uh, into this I'm uh, acting as a yes lead buyer uh, on uh, metal parts uh, for the uh, for the automotive and the truck industry uh, tier one applications so you're you're located in Germany right absolutely in the southwest of Germany in the in the area of uh, Stuttgart to be precise. So how did you end up in Germany uh, at your position? What's your story? Oh, it's a story of uh, opportunities uh, and sometimes a bit of luck, uh, I'd say. Um, I've been taking several uh, positions uh, within the, uh, the industrial world, um, mainly, uh, well, exclusively uh, oriented on the purchasing functions. And always uh, in link with the metal uh, forming or machining uh, industry. I started uh, in, a, in the oil and gas uh, sector, uh, being responsible for uh, purchasing uh, parts, uh, metal parts made of casting process uh, to build pumps for uh, the oil and gas industries, uh, oil rigs, uh, oil platforms in uh, high-grade uh, alloy steel and uh, kind of uh, exotic materials. Um, so that's the first job. Then comes the opportunity. <laughs> I had uh, the opportunity uh, to change and uh, go to work for the uh, automotive industry uh, after that uh, and start working uh, for a company that doesn't exist anymore that has been absorbed uh, by the Bosch Group in uh, 2015, producing uh, steering systems uh, for uh, cars and trucks. Then after this opportunity, then comes the chance. 
and uh, that uh, disposition was linked with uh, mandatory mobility to Germany after uh, one year in France as the entity was being integrated to the Bosch group. So I had the chance to, yes, then move to Germany and get a position uh, of uh, international lead buyer in the central purchasing organization for automotive components within uh, the Bosch group. How was it to change from oil and gas to automotive? Well, in terms of Purchasing maturity, um, people tend to say that uh, automotive is the benchmark uh, in the world because they are, uh, let's say, answering uh, and working within a very frame world uh, ruled by ISO uh, norms, which are uh, defining basically uh, a lot of processes in the automotive industry. The uh, Advantage of that is that from one automotive company to the other, the processes will always look alike. Mm -hmm. In the oil and gas industry, uh, the business is very different. The business is very different. Uh, you don't sell uh, OEM uh, equipment most of the time to make money. You sell OEM equipment to secure an aftermarket business. So mm -hmm. the life cycles of the products are very different. The expectations of the customers are very different. And uh, let's say the profit centers are also very different. And of course, you don't have one of the biggest leverage that you have until recently in the automotive industry, which is the leverage of the volumes. What is, um, you know, one of the big achievements that you have uh, had in your career that you want to talk about? I mean, if I have to recall uh, only one, I would talk about uh, one experience that I had uh, on a portfolio that I have been uh, appointed to. We are talking uh, about uh, yeah, seven, eight uh, digit portfolio worth of uh, purchasing volume uh, with a worldwide footprint. Uh, in terms of supply base as well as uh, delivery points on the safety critical parts. And uh, this portfolio basically was a portfolio uh, handled by a duopoly of suppliers. And the main, I would say, task I got by getting this portfolio was you have to break the duopoly either yeah. <laughs> by bringing a new either by bringing a new player in either or uh, by bringing back competition uh, or by bringing any new uh, and disruptive id that could support bringing mm -hmm. this portfolio uh, back uh, into competition product was uh, interesting because it was a product with a very high volume uh, low mix but also uh, low value added. Most of the value added was done in-house by us. So only with the effect of the volumes, uh, we could find suppliers that would find a economical interest uh, having this portfolio. Okay. okay. The, um, the status was that we were also highly suspecting that the suppliers were sharing the business uh, between each other and having an understanding on the prices, the offers that they would make to uh, to share basically the business. And the task so was uh, to come from this uh, status quo where we have yeah tens of millions of uh, purchasing volumes that we don't have any hand on because uh, two guys on the market are sharing it. Mm. How did we break that? That's probably yeah. the interesting part. 
how did we break that? It's not a matter of days. It's not a matter of weeks. It requested the, the setup of a whole strategy and a lot of uh, also internal promotion of this strategy. Because to be able to uh, do what we had planned, we needed to have the whole internal stakeholders on board. The plan was to go into steps supplier to address first supplier A and basically giving him the opportunity through a negotiation to revise his uh, price model and uh, his, uh, the profitability of his product and to express clearly the consequences uh, that we would, I would say, carry on if uh, our expectations were not met. And the consequence was, dear supplier, you think we cannot uh, live with you. I tell you that if today we don't have a, an understanding and a positive uh, understanding over our demands, you don't get a single new business over the next six months. So that was, and that was really, uh, that was the end of it. Uh, of course, when you talk about negotiation, the negotiation itself is maybe 10% of the whole process. The 90% is the preparation and the alignment forward. And it took a lot of time to convince people internally to basically say, okay, for the next six months, we go only with the supplier B because we have a strong message to send to supplier one, to supplier A. Okay. And we did it. And we did it. And we kept to make the message clear. We held to the consequence, despite the supplier came back several times to us uh, with improving conditions, improving offers. And here, the goal was to send a strong message. And the message was, we don't threaten. We don't put people under pressure. We are consequent. And when I say I don't give you any part, any new part for the next six months, I handle to it. After six months, of course, we sat again around the table. We were able to renegotiate all the conditions, of course, to our advantage. And then I would say we didn't have to... Uh, to sit down with the other supplier, with the supplier B at the end of the day, because supplier A, as accepting all our conditions, was making prices or was making offers that were making him win all the new business. Yeah. So when the supplier B came and said, why don't I uh, have any more uh, new business? The answer was, well, the other is more competitive than you. And then the message was passed. So by doing once with one, we managed to, uh, to solve the entire case. Consequently to that, and we went up to a point that the both suppliers were asking us at the end to organize auctions to uh, <laughs> award the business. Honestly, they were begging us to organize auctions because they understood that they didn't have any uh, leverage on the market anymore, that we were basically deciding on criterias that they had no leverage on, which was not only price or uh, economics that they could uh, have an influence on. And they were coming to us, asking us to award the businesses through auctions. And that's also what happened afterwards. We had several uh, package bundles that uh, we have successfully awarded uh, through uh, auction systems. And where we also got a very, very uh, good, astonishing uh, results in terms yeah. of, yes, in terms of uh, performance compared to uh, the last offer we had before the auctions. So what was the cost saving in it eventually? Well, compared to the, uh, to the last committed offer that we received, we and the literature said that usually when you have one more supplier than you need, 
to award the business to, you achieve a minus 7% uh, savings mm -hmm. uh, with an auction. As it was the first time with... Uh, or the first times with these people and that they were very eager to uh, secure business, we managed in some case to reach minus 20% uh, on, the, on the awarded volume. Wow, that's massive. Taking into account how large the portfolio was at the beginning. So all in all, you... Uh... It, it took less than a year for you to put this um, strategy in place and to get the first results? Or Yes, it's uh, roughly one year to uh, okay. being only focused on that. And how did it work to convince people internally? Because I, I guess not everybody was convinced it would succeed, right? Um, what was the strategy as well internally? Who was involved uh, from mm -hmm. the lower range to upper management? Basically, um, so the, the task... And the objective was given by the upper management uh, mm -hmm. uh, when I uh, took this function um, internally. And that was a bit of the, I would say, the yeah commercial that you have to do internally to sell your ideas. Of course, people were not happy project-wise with, uh, with, uh, with this situation. Huh? And coming, presenting that as a solution, saying, okay, guys, there are people from the project. Dear people from the controlling, uh, dear people uh, from development, which are not happy with the suppliers because they are also dictating their uh, industrial and design conditions. Mm -hmm. The strategy is to show the most painful of the two that we don't need him. Help me to show him that we don't need him. Once this guy will have understood that we can do without him for a sufficiently long period, the level of cooperation will be totally different. So you have a problem. I have a problem. We both have a problem. And I want to solve all our problems at the same time. I want to be able to reach my KPI. I want to be able to reach profitability on the portfolio for the company. I want that the supplier... And the suppliers are showing much more cooperation and uh, readiness for discussion with uh, our development teams, with our engineering teams. And I want that they also provide us uh, with a better project support. Yeah. So we all have a problem because of that. There is a solution that we need to do and we need to strike strong, be consequent and make sure that we are carrying on the consequences. Only with that, we will be taken seriously by the suppliers. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're pointing it out as well. Like, uh, obviously, Geopoly is, um, is uh, not good for you know, the level of prices, but uh, as well, the whole overall responsiveness of the suppliers, right? Because when they are too comfortable, they don't go the extra mile or they, the level of support they are giving to their customers is not uh, very high. On that front, you have saved not only money, but as well uh, a lot of um, time and quality uh, in terms of relationships with uh, all the departments and the suppliers, right? Yes. And uh, I want to underline that uh, it doesn't presume uh, of any degradation of uh, the relationship that we can have with our supplier. Even more, when we are uh, allowed and when we show that we are able to carry on with consequences, we gain respect from our counterparts. Because then we are not just a dog that is barking and trying to scare the other one in front, but they will always think twice, is he meaning what he's saying? Will he do it? And if you showed before that you have the possibility to carry on what you say, 
then your message is understood very differently. Yeah, very inspiring. Thank you very much for sharing. Uh, in aeronautics and our space, there are a lot of geopolies and um, situations where it's very hard for buyers to uh, you know, manage uh, the portfolio and achieve uh, cost-saving targets and get the level of responsiveness and respect they uh, they deserve. By the way, I wanted to ask you, because you're, uh, you spent your career in direct procurement, direct sourcing. How, how did you came to to, uh, to start um, working in that environment? Well, I think it's a, a matter of opportunities that you have throughout one's studies and discovering different functions, companies during the internship uh, or uh, part-time jobs that you can do in, uh, in different companies. And I have had several experiences also during my uh, my studies, be it uh, on the more commercial uh, sales side, being uh, then also on the purchasing uh, side. And I particularly uh, liked the fact that uh, purchasing is a function which has a connection with almost every other function in the company. We have to deal every day with uh, the financial guys who are tracking our results. We have to deal every day with the production, which is using the parts that we are purchasing. We have to deal every day with the logistic that is making sure that the parts we are purchasing are coming time. We have to deal every day with the quality department. Sometimes we even have to deal with the internal sales colleague when uh, we want to uh, work upfront on potential uh, new business. And when things go very bad, you even have to deal with uh, the company head office and uh, with the CEOs. And I personally uh, cannot picture any other function where you have on a regular basis so many different contacts with so many different functions. Yeah, that's true. And you said it very well, like uh, from outside, uh, industry and procurement doesn't seem very sexy, but uh, for me, it's one of the most interesting jobs you could ever wish for because of the diversity, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is this is something very exciting, but this is also something that needs to be uh, also said, uh, that uh, purchasing is not always a quiet job. It's uh, sometimes uh, a lot of unexpected. It uh, sometimes also uh, a lot of stress. Also very, very uh, intense moments in terms of emotions, in terms of pride and uh, reward. Uh, when you achieve a, a great negotiation that you have prepared during months and that you have fought over the table with a supplier, it's uh, always for yourself uh, very uh, also a very good ego booster. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just want to make it uh, to make it true. It's a very very intense and passionate job for passionate people. I think. Yeah, and. Uh... Something that is uh, pretty rare as well is that you you have access to the world, right? When you manage a portfolio, most of the time your suppliers will be global. Can you tell us a little bit about how you approach diversity in terms of you know suppliers uh, all around the world? Well, managing an international portfolio is always a, a challenge, but also a great source of uh, I'd say uh, inspiration because there are plenty of things uh, we learn every day from uh, different cultures. Um, let's take uh, one uh, one aspect that I'm quite familiar with. If I talk about negotiation, 
very specific details about intercultural negotiation are very different from one country uh, to the other. For instance, if you take Asian countries, um, you cannot make somebody lose the face in front of you and in front of his team. That's part of, the, of their culture. There is a lot of respect and one should, for instance, avoid at all costs, uh, even during a hard negotiation, to make a loose face to the to the counterpart. If you don't know that, you can get the people out of the room very quickly, particularly uh, when you are French and that you love to use irony, sarcasm uh, and very indirect uh, communication. That is something uh, that is very tricky. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the indirect communication is something uh, that in Germany is uh, very hard to understand around the table where people tend to culturally more to name the point and to discuss the fact uh, without any emotions, where we Latin people will tend to take what is at the end of the day just a formal critique very personally. So and jumping between all these is uh, also, I think, very interesting, but also very uh it's, it's an enrichment uh also for me as a person you you learn to make your comfort zone wider we always strive to stay in our comfort zone i would say but by putting yourself uh, in such situation and not fearing them but welcoming them you just enlarge your comfort zone also and that's something that is uh, also very useful in the purchasing world because as i said before it's a world that is and particularly nowadays full of unexpected yeah totally <laughs> so now now you have buyers that are completely outside of their comfort zone with uh, disruptions happening every day right how do you uh, live through the pandemic well aside from uh, working from home Uh, you probably heard about uh, what happened in the automotive industry globally, but uh, lots of uh, customers, so uh, car makers as well as uh, suppliers, had to shut down uh, during the lockdowns. Um, what we felt is that shortly after the lockdown was over, we had really a rebound on the demands. And the task for the buyers at this time was to make sure that we get sufficient parts from just freshly restarting suppliers to fill up back again as fast as possible the pipe at our customers. And then it was a bit the case in which for very different reasons we are finding uh, ourselves in nowadays was not how much uh, money do I spare or uh, how much uh, will I get for this award, but how do I do to get my parts before my competitors? Because then your competitive advantage is not anymore on the price, but on the first who is able to deliver. Mm, totally. And that's a real challenge because we tend to be as purchasers very focused on the price But we shouldn't forget that uh, we buy uh, not for the price, we buy to sell. We buy to manufacture and we buy to sell. And in a context of going out of a lockdown, when all the companies are restarting and uh, filling up their pipes as fast as possible, when if you are the one that secured all your uh, supply chain upfront, planned the restart and make sure that uh, you get your parts delivered, you will be the first one on the market to, uh, to deliver. Yes. And that we see also with very, very different causes also nowadays. There are shortages everywhere, be it for the raw material shortage, be it for the increase of energy costs, be it 
for the crisis that we have currently uh, also with the containers and the, the shipment lines. Who would have expected that a boat would block, I remember, 14-15% of the worldwide traffic, container traffic for two weeks? Yeah. Who would have expected that? If you are the one that can come with an innovative solution to deliver your, your customers first and that your customer has the choice between you and another guy and you are the only one to provide the parts, you will have the contract. How, how do you use your skills and especially negotiation skills to get out of tricky situations like that? Negotiation is... Uh, very often understood uh, from the internal stakeholders as a very, very blurry concept. Uh, I tend to say uh, for them, when they talk about negotiation, it's like we have a magic button and each time we press on it, we get minus 1%. So the more we press on it, the more we, we have saving. Negotiation is everything but that. Negotiation is the meeting of two, co of two interests that are very different but that have a very tiny overlapping. And the whole art or trick of the negotiation is to find where this overlapping is, how wide it is, and how can I close a deal as close as possible to my expectations. Otherwise, we are just fighting for positions and principles. And that's an error that a lot of people do in negotiation. They come, they describe their position, the counterpart comes, describe their position, and basically the fight is who is right. And we are trying to convince people that we are right. A negotiation is not about being right or wrong. A negotiation is about finding a deal. And you can totally say to your counterpart, yes, I understand what you say. Yes, you are absolutely right. Now we are here to close a deal. We are not here to uh, find who is right and who is wrong. Uh, and that's very, a very tough process to bring your counterpart to realize that you are fully entitled to say what you say. You are fully right. Your demonstration is very logic. But at the end of the day, I will not give you what you want. So how do we move with that? And that's the first part of the negotiation that we call the escalation, where we uh, define the position, stand the positions, defend the positions. Uh, you can call that a trench war, where we look at each other right in the eye, very far from the table, and uh, repeating again and again and again our positions. Then there is always a moment in the negotiation that we call the, the turnaround point, where somebody of the two partners will start signaling the willingness to close a deal to the other. It can be by putting a new offer on the table. Uh, it can be also by body language, for instance, instead of staying around the table, starting writing on a whiteboard, uh, some things like that. And the whole art of the negotiator is to identify this moment when have escalated enough uh, that we have been building up the conflict, building up the conflict, building up the conflict, and that now we want to solve the conflict. And that's the second part of the negotiation. And that's probably the most interesting one also, is that we are when we are leaving this fighting mode to a cooperative mode. But the cooperative mode cannot happen before uh, without the, the fighting mode. or Otherwise, it's not a negotiation, it's a compromise, which is not the same. I remember when we were preparing uh, the podcast, you mentioned that you had a training uh, for negotiation uh, in particular. Uh, what was this training and would you recommend uh, to other buyers? Absolutely. So 
the the training was about a, a negotiation method which is uh, there is tons of literature about it it's called the FBI method which is basically a negotiation method that is uh, that was originally used uh, by the FBI agents during a hostage taking situation um i can recommend any training that is uh, using this method or any book because it's always the the same uh, you look for uh, the fbi negotiation tactics on google you will find tons of literature about that there is no good or wrong it's a method it's a method and the good with a method is that you are sure that within the preparation you will not forget anything and within the negotiation itself you will probably avoid most of the traps and uh, or things that you could forget or things that should not be said into a negotiation it's very efficient it's very efficient also in terms of role definition and negotiation mandate definition and i can uh, i can really um, i can really recommend it there are very uh, i would say trivial uh, elements of language that are used for instance if i have to mention uh, one or two but like in a hostage situation when you are in the escalating phase you never say no to a to a supplier or to a counterpart when you start escalating you never say no you have to find something less definitive you have some people are very good at it they will look at you and say hard mm. or complicated and not say anything after that but avoid uh, saying no at all cost at the beginning avoid locking up the conversation uh, we want to uh, to escalate and of course later on the no is perfectly acceptable when we when we are in let's say the more cooperative phase and that we are discussing options but at the beginning that would be a that would be a first um, another one would be make sure you are fully entitled to negotiate and make sure that the person that is in front of you is fully entitled to negotiate or has direct contact to the person who is able to make the decision and by direct contact i mean the person can have him directly on skype or on the phone to be able to close a deal otherwise it will be like 80% of the negotiations i have made on my side and on other side okay thank you for your counter offer i need to review that with my management we see each other in one week so to make sure a negotiation is successful and that you close a deal make sure you are fully entitled to close it yeah can you uh talk about something you learned the hard way like maybe an experience that you had where something went wrong or uh, what you've learned from a, a real experience it's probably be the one that is uh, helping yourself and uh, don't rely too much on uh, processes or uh, job description and be ready to walk the extra mile uh, i've been sometimes in situations um where retrospectively um should i have had at the time five years more of uh, experience uh, maybe a bit more self confidence i would have provoked some discussions or taken the lead on uh, some i would say actions which were not in my field of responsibility for the sake of bringing a project forward it's not because it's uh, the project team Uh, to review and validate, for instance, the drawings with a supplier, that if you see that it doesn't go the right way or the right pace, you can provoke it. 
you can make it happen and not wait on the others to do it. And uh, that's probably one of uh, the things that I have learned when I started working is be the one that provoke the things. Don't be the one that complains that you cannot do your job because the other uh, don't deliver on time or uh, are not uh, delivering sufficient quality. Uh, be a business driver and lead your job, lead yourself and inspire the others. Yeah. Do you think uh, there is um, now with COVID, um, the pandemic, the shortages that has been experienced uh, so far, that there is a new type of buyer, especially industrial buyer? Well, clearly, we are now living in a world that is more and more chaotic in terms of uh, supplies. Uh, we still don't know what will the next shortage be. Uh, We still don't know if we will have uh, enough electricity in five years when everybody will come home and plug their uh, electric car at the same time in the evening to charge them. Uh, um, so there is an evolution of uh, the buyer's job, clearly. Uh, and we have, as buyers now, to deal with much more uncertainty. We have to deal with much more uncertainty. We have to deal much with much more unexpected And I believe that's a quality of being able to swim in this very chaotic sea that will make also a, a very good profile for a buyer for the coming years. Because somebody, even for your suppliers, we hear it every day. Our suppliers are begging us, give us certainty, give us commit on volumes, commit on something stable. And if you are embodying this stability, if you are embodying this serenity, you will also gain a lot in terms of a partnership with, uh, with your suppliers. Be the one that is committing. Be the one that is taking risks also. Of course, agreed internally with your internal stakeholders, but be the one that puts business on the table and that commits to it. This is really, uh, I think, what will help in the coming years. This is also one side. And as I said, the other side, be also the one that can absorb all the unexpected things that occur every day. Turn it to your advantage and don't take any situation as definitive. Things can change from one day to another. We were talking about the crisis. There are lots of suppliers that were basically with whom we never had problems that were almost working off the charts because things were so smooth uh, with them that we see now unexpectedly going bankrupt, uh, stopping deliveries. So you can't be ready for everything, but embrace the change and embrace the unexpected. This is also a great chance for creativity. In such situation, it's not the process that is going to save you or not only. It's the way you manage to find a quick, sustainable, economically reliable solution. And if this solution is not written in your company books, it's still worth it presenting it to your decision makers and to how people say, bring solutions out of the box. There is one thing that you're mentioning here is access to information. How do you see data in your, in your job? It comes about uh, data through the prism of uh, risk management uh, of the supply base. There are, of course, and it's good for what it is, several organisms that are providing uh, ratings of companies. We, uh, we know them uh, based on financial health. Um, that's a good first input point, I would say, but I would say also that it's not sufficient. We want to evaluate the risk at a supplier 
you have to go there. You have to go there. You have to see how the production looks like, how the people look like. You have to see what happens at the shift change. If people are staying and cleaning uh, their working uh, places or if they are running directly to the exit. When you go to visit a supplier, look at the information boards, what the unions are writing, what uh, kind of information uh, is uh, written. Look at the quality boards. Everything is in the shop floor. Just look. Look also at the stock of the supplier. Does he have tons of stock of finished parts that are not shipped? Means that customers are canceling orders. Look at the machines. Are the machines clean? Is the shop floor painted and clean? Or are the machines covered with oil and rust and you sleep on the floor every three steps? That tells a lot about the health of a, of a company. Yeah. So you can, you can of course, rely on indexes. Uh, you can rely on business reports. But the best idea you will get about a supplier is by getting there and looking how it works. Because at the end of the day, it's when you are a direct buyer, it's where your parts are produced. And then you will get a much better idea. And you don't need to be a specialist. If you don't feel that uh, you are good enough to go there, take a colleague from the quality department with you. Or take uh, a colleague from the manufacturing department with you. Go there, have a shop floor tour, and observe. Yeah, and trips with uh, colleagues like that, I remember from quality or engineering, you learn so much as well, right? By just uh, hitting the floor and reviewing the parts and the specifications together with the suppliers so you understand the value chain as well. Um, it's um, it's very interesting for sure. Thank you for mentioning that. So, you know, in light of everything that you mentioned so far, what do you want our youngest listeners to uh to remember and what do you want to advise to them for the future? Well, I'd like to tell them the purchasing is really an exciting job. And if you are a person that is curious, that likes to learn, that likes to walk the extra mile, that's a very good choice to pick because you will have there plenty of opportunities. You will also have there plenty of opportunities for development. Purchasing is, uh, if I remember well, the last studies that I read, that I read one of the ways Uh, aside from finance, to uh, reach uh, executive positions in uh, in companies, it's a good also step uh, towards management position. Uh, it's really uh, an open door to a to a lot of career path. And don't fear the change. Change is happening anyways. Don't fear the unexpected. Something even worse than what you can expect will happen. Embrace it. Take a step back when it happens. There is always a solution. There is always a solution. And for most of us, keep one thing in mind. At the end of the day, nobody dies because something happened at our end. So take the opportunities, experiment and enjoy. It's really a passionating job. If you are a passionate person, then you will be very happy into it. Right. Yeah, very uh, good last words. Thank you so much for sharing. That was super interesting. Um Uh, I think you are you managed to give the all the essence of the job um, via your experiences. So thank you so much for for sharing all this. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much again for inviting me. It was very interesting to discuss this with you, and uh, I hope that uh, your auditors will uh, find that also as interesting and exciting as I found it. All right, cool. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye bye.